Oh man, super excited to be here today. There is, there is probably less than two things that I, that I would, uh, maybe less than one thing that I'd rather be doing than getting to be here with you. The other uh, has everything to do with my wife and getting to go to Colorado, which we have on the trip planned very soon. But I love getting to talk about leadership, and it's an understatement to say that. I've given my whole life to be a, to be, um, a part of the body of Christ in such a way that I get to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to be someone who raises up disciples. I was 18 years old when I came to know Christ, and the very first person in my life that had any kind of impact on me in the body of Christ was a guy named Jackie Gibbs, who was 25 at the time, and he just he said, hey, I want to I want to start teaching you how to read the Bible. And this guy just sat down with me and taught me how to read the Bible. He was 25, I was 18, and he just taught me how to read the Bible. And we played basketball together, and we read the Bible together, and we threw rocks together. Went swimming at the beach, because I grew up down south Padre Island area in a small town in Texas, about 12,000 people. And um, he was the first person that really showed me what it was like to follow Jesus. And he just said, hey, come on, let's, let's, let's do this together. And that was at 18. I'm 58 now. That was 40 years ago. And, and it seemed like from the first moment that I started following Christ that there was people following me, and not because of anything I did, not because I was super charismatic. It's just kind of the way God worked things out. And so probably about mm, 10 years ago, God like re-showed re this verse to me. When you read this verse at 30, it doesn't mean as much as it does to you at 58. And so probably about 10 years ago at 48, this verse kind of landed on my heart, and it kind of became like, what I believe God has, has for me in the last parts of my life. This is Psalm 71, 17. It's not on the screen, but it says this. So God, from my youth, you have taught me. And so I, I just want to ask you this. Like, I, don't, I don't know how long you've been a follower of Christ, but, but can you declare with the saints today that from your youth God has taught you? The Psalm 71, 17, if you want to go look at it. And I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs. I don't have many gray hairs because they've fallen out. What's left is in my eyebrows and my little goatee, um, and some of my arms. It's crazy when the hair on your arm starts turning gray. Then you know you're really old. I don't know how that works, but, uh, but I love that God says, so even to old age and gray hairs. Hmm. Oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all who will hear. So 24 years ago, I moved from Texas to St. Louis to plant a church. I was there for 20 years, a place called Matthias, uh, excuse me, at the Summit Church in, in O'Fallon. And somewhere in the middle of that process, I was talking to Preston earlier over here, and, and we were just talking about how that went down in my life. And somewhere in the middle of that process, I got to be a part of raising up and sending out a lot of guys to plant churches and to be a part of revitalizing churches and to be a part of that process in the middle of the kingdom and had always loved getting to pour in, raise up, and send out guys. And so in the middle of that, there was this moment when God really started shaking my heart to do that more. And what started becoming attention in my own heart was, was I was pastoring this church, but trying to create time to raise up and send out guys. And for any of you that are, that are pastoring a church and trying to raise up people, you know that there's, there's a pull not only on, on your heart in that, but time, just the reality of the time in that. Um, and to some degree, it's, it's a little bit, there are times when it's, when it's more pleasant, and I'm going to use this word instead of good, it's more pleasing to your mind to pastor a church behind a pulpit than it is to actually get in the mud and mire with people and raise them up from their immaturity to maturity. And so there's, there's, this, is, this is a lot more pleasing because there's really, there's not a whole lot of talking back. I've been booed once during a sermon. Anybody else ever? 
Like, that's amazing, isn't it, when you get booed in a sermon? Uh, that was one of the highlights of my life. I'll, another story for another time. But I've been booed before, so people do talk back. And, and, and there's a lot of congregational talk back in where we are, too. But booing, totally different deal altogether. But secondly, I, I love the interaction with the person. And so there was this tension in me of, like, I want to create more time for this, yet this is easier. But I loved what I was doing where I was. And so God was asking me to create more bandwidth to raise up guys. And yet I didn't want to leave the church where I was. And so there became this tension at some point about... Ten years ago, God said, hey, I really want you to do this, and I need you to tell some people so that you have accountability. And so I didn't. And I don't know if you've ever been flat-out disobedient to God in things that feel like, it's not like porn. When God says, stop looking at porn, you're like, no, I'm going to do this. This was like God asking me to do something godly, like, hey, I want you to go raise up men. I'm like, mm, not going to do that. It's still disobedience. Can I just say that? It doesn't matter whether it's porn or telling God, no, I don't want to be a pastor. Disobedience is disobedience. And they have just as many consequences, like in the, in the grand scheme of things. And I just said no to God because I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to go be a part of leaving and starting over something new again. And doing what I, even though I love starting things, I was like, God, I don't want to leave this. And so, again, there was years, and God gets his way, right? I mean, I don't know how, how much you've ever said no to God, but if you're his son, eventually he gets his way. About three years later, like he started crushing me into a place of saying, you're going to do this. And so I told my wife, and she knew, like she looked at me and said, well, I knew this. And I was like, why didn't you say anything? She goes, I'm not being the Holy Spirit in your life. Unlike you, who like to be the Holy Spirit in my life, I'm not going to be that in your life. And so she was kind, gracious. And, and so I went and told one of my friends, who's, who's one of our leaders at the church, one of our pastors, long story short, about four years later, they're sending me out, and it was beautiful. And they sent me out down the road to a church that we had helped plant called Matthias's Lot in St. Charles, and I, I get to be there now. I've been there for four years, and basically I get to work with anybody and everybody that wants to be raised up and sent out. Uh, Demontre sitting in the back room here is one of my friends who, who's in the part of our process, gets to be here with Sam at this church as a, as a, as a pastor in residency growing up, and he wants to, wants to pastor in a small town somewhere, and so all of you guys uh, be on the lookout for Demontre doing that somewhere sometime soon. We're not sure where God's going to where God's going to stick him and plant him in the ground, but we know that's going to happen soon. And so I get to do that. That's what I get to be a part of doing. And, and my whole life, like to old age and gray hairs, has, has been about that and will continue to be about that. Um, I get to work with pastors all over St. Louis, all over the Midwest, as Sam talked about. And from, from a lot of years of getting to do that, I want to give you some observations as I get started this morning. And we're going to be talking about what Jesus defined an empowered servant leadership looks like. But I want to give you some observations this morning as we get started, just from a lot of years of walking with pastors and churches. Here's the overarching observation. The church is in a servant leadership crisis. Um, I, I get to spend a lot of time in a lot of churches and a lot of places with a lot of pastors, but, but it, it is obvious that, that we, as a, as a body of Christ, are in a, in a leadership crisis, just in, not only in the lack of leaders to lead, um, but, but just the and so it's not just a matter of we need more guys, but there is absolutely just a, a lack of, of guys that are, that are qualified and actually leading the way I believe God's called us to. And so here's, here's the first of those things that I'll use as evidence. The first one is this. There's, there's a lack of Jesus-defined and empowered servant leadership in pastors. As I get to hang out with pastors and, and friends, and, and this is, let me, let, me, let me clarify some terms first. When I say defined, what I'm talking about is what what predominantly defines your life. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when it gives us qualifications for a pastor, there, those things on there describe every single one of us. We've all been angry at some point in time, but if that defines your life, you don't need to be a pastor. 
And so when I'm talking about this idea of there's a lack of Jesus-defined and empowered servant leadership in pastors, I'm saying there are a lot of pastors that are leading, but they're not servant leaders. And I get to see that most, not by how they preach and even how they interact with people in their body, but by being around them and their wife. And when you get around a pastor and his wife and you just get to see the countenance on a lady's face after being with them for like seven hours, three hours, five hours, you can tell how a guy is leading in his home by just, by just being around his wife. And, and there's multiple ways we could talk about that, but you know what I'm talking about as you get to be around men. Here's the second thing. This lack of Jesus-defined and empowered servant leadership has led many pastors to become a dictator. Like there's so, and, and I would say this, like there's a lot of benevolent dictators that are pastors. You ever been around those guys, work for them, right? They're benevolent dictators. And what I mean by that, they're, they're really nice, but they're still dictators. They're really kind dictators. They're really kind, powerful dictators that Jesus said, this isn't how we're supposed to lead. You've had those coaches, you've had those dads, you've had those people, but God warned us in Peter's book, right? First Peter five, like, Hey, we're not to Lord over. It's not how he's called us to pastor. There's more being, um, pastors being removed now from the pastorate for being bullies than there is for sexual sin, which is the first time ever in the United States. Sexual sin still rampant, but there's more guys being removed for being bullies than, than ever before, which is evidence. Second thing there, or third, third thing, this is lack has led many pastors to become kind and passive professors of God's word. Like the flip of being a bully is when you're a kind, passive professor. And so I don't know in your life what kind of leaders you've had. Like I had coaches and dads and, and bosses and pastors. And on one extreme, I had the dictator leader. And on the other extreme, I had the passive professor who, who both of them were, were not great leaders. Like one had influence, but he had it from power, and the other had zero influence and was super kind. And he looked like a servant, but he had zero influence. And this guy had a lot of influence, but it was all through power and platform. And neither one of those are what Christ is calling us to. And unfortunately, there's a lot of guys standing in pulpits like these that are just passive professors, man. They're giving great professor sermons, and there's nothing wrong, professors, if you are one, I'm not slamming on you, but there's a difference between a professor and a shepherd. There, there is. And we need professors, but you're not called to be a professor if you're leading a church. You're called to be a shepherd. And you're not called to be a passive professor, for sure. Fourth thing, this lack has led many pastors, it's my last metaphor for you in this thing, has led many pastors to becoming an unloving rancher instead of a loving shepherd. Now, now ranchers, they don't hate their cattle, but there is a drastic difference between what a rancher's trying to do and what a shepherd's trying to do. I mean, at the end of the day, the rancher's leading those things to slaughter, and a shepherd's not. And I, I just get around so many pastors, and I struggle with this because a rancher gets to do life from a distance, right? You get to enjoy the views, you get to sit on your horse, you get to move people places, you get to see things get accomplished, but at the end of the day, all those things are just to be used. All of those people are cows being used as opposed to sheep that you are one of being shepherded by a greater shepherd, right? This lack has led many believers to settle for all three of these leaders. Like we have the body of Christ all over the United States just settling for leaders that are ranchers or dictators or passive professors. It's unfortunate because then those people get taught that kind of leadership and they go back and lead that way in their home and in their jobs and in their community. And then we as pastors want to call them to lead and we wonder why they lead the way they do because what they've had modeled for them for so many years is a rancher, passive professor, or a dictator. 
And we wonder why we have to beat so much of this bad leadership out of them because that's what they've seen for so many years in so many places where they should be seeing something different. Sixth thing here, when building a leadership culture, and we're going to talk about this in the, in the second time we get together, second session, when building a leadership culture, this lack of Jesus-defined and empowered servant leadership has led many pastors to become talent agents versus a really good high school coach. Let me explain the difference in that. Like a talent agent discovers talent by seeing their incredible gifts. Uh, there's a movie out there right now that um, Adam Sandler is in right now, and he's an he's a NBA talent agent. If you've never seen it, it's not great. But anyway, the point is, his whole job is he gets to go out there and find the next NBA star. And how does he discover them? He watches their skills. Do they have handles? Can they shoot? Do they have the three in the repertoire? What, what is their skills as an NBA player? And so he gets to see all this, and what he notices is just gifts. And for most pastors, we want to be talent agents. We want to discover the really gifted guy. We hope he walks into our church and sits down in our pew and walks up to us after our service and says, Pastor, I just want to learn from you. And then as we get to know him, we're like, this dude's super talented. And then one day we get to put him forward and we're like, hey, look what I did. And really all you did was just discover him as a talent agent. As opposed to being a really good high school coach. And by the way, these guys don't exist. They're in somebody else's church. Or they're serving somewhere, usually, right? The really good high school coach, have you ever had one of those? Like, they realize, like, heart mattered just as much as talent. Especially at the high school level. Like, if you had a guy that would run through a wall for you, you wanted that dude on your team, right? If you had a guy that really wanted to be a part of the team, that mattered just as much as how much talent he had. And at some level, the high school coach realizes, I've got to develop people. Like, from ninth grade to twelfth grade, I've got four years to get them to be what I need them to be to be a part of my team, as opposed to just discovering the talent and putting them on my team. High school coaches are developing people. It's what they do. And as pastors, that's what we're called to do. We're called to the long haul. It's a long process. It's hard work. It's messy. And a ton of those ninth grade kids that come try out for ninth grade basketball, there's like 25 that show up in your school. How many are left their senior year? Six? You have six seniors on your varsity team, maybe out of 25, because 16 of them just went, I don't want to work this hard. I don't want to sit on the bench. I don't want to be a team player. I wanted to date the cheerleader. I didn't want to sit on the bench. And we have that attrition rate as we start pouring into men. I mean, you're just going to see guys step out and step left. And it's not all because of bad things. Some are just called to be, talked to a guy earlier, butchers. And that's not a bad thing. We need butchers that love Jesus. And we have one in here that loves Jesus and a pastor. How about that? And so we need all different kinds of guys doing all different kinds of things, but not all are going to stay in the process. It's a long, hard slog. But here's the last thing. This lack has led many pastors to hunger for servant leadership. How to have influence through servanthood versus power. That's what we're going to talk about in this first session. Is how do we have influence through servanthood versus power and platform? How does God work in us and call us to develop a, a life in our home with our kids and our wife, but also in the middle of the body of Christ, in the middle of this community, that we have influence through the, being the greatest servant as opposed to being the one with the power and the platform? Because it feels a lot easier to have influence through the platform. It feels a lot more um, satisfying at times to have the influence through the platform. It is a lot less satisfying to clean poop off of shoes, as Jesus did, than it is to stand in a place like this at times. And so, I, I want to say this to you. Every time I get to to be a part of 
of talking about servant leadership. God, God spends a lot of time wrecking my own heart, confronting my own sin, confronting my own pride, confronting the things in me that, that don't smell like Jesus, look like Jesus, and act like Jesus. And he does that first with my wife. He does that with other men in my life and other people I get to be around. And so I want you to know this. I, want, I really want to learn with you today. Um, I, want, I want to go to the feet of Jesus, and I want the master to speak to us. Um, not to give us uh, five steps for how to be a better leader, but to really sit at the feet of Jesus and for him to first and foremost open up our chest and do some heart work. And so if, if that's your desire with me, I, I want to step into that place with Christ. The problem with that is this. I want to tell you straight up front, like most of us want the fruit of servant leadership. Most of us just don't want the, the work of servant leadership on our own hearts. And so as a pastor, just hear what I'm telling you. Like we long for those kind of people in our body that will exude and live out and breathe out servant leadership, you're not going to get those and develop those unless you are. And the only way that happens in you is God constantly doing work on your heart. It's not a one time I learned four things. This is how I get to be a servant. And it is work the Holy Spirit's doing. It's beautiful work. It's good work. It's joyous work, but it's work. It's work. So let's dive in. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. If you have your Bibles, go over there. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Jesus is with the 12, and we get to see a great encounter. As Jesus defines for us servant leadership, but also he's going to talk about how he empowers it. Verse 20 of chapter 20, it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. We're going to get to see a lot of uh, examples of, of leadership in this encounter, and this is one of the first ones. Um, this is a mom. I mean, the awkwardness of this whole scene is just crazy. This is a mom with her grown sons. We don't know how old they are. Most people think the disciples at this point were younger guys, right? Not, they're not the old guys like we used to have in the you know, and when we did the Passover meal, you know, in the church I grew up in, we had like 70-year-old disciples up here, and I learned later, probably John wasn't 70, maybe more 17 to 27, somewhere in there, right? But so either way, they're not 12-year-olds, right? They're whatever they are, they're 18, 19, 25, and here comes their mommy up to Jesus, being a leader of the situation. Who knows whether they put it up to her or not, or whether this is her idea, but mom's coming up to Jesus, and I want you to notice her leadership tactic. She gets on her knees. Don't miss this. It says she comes up with her sons and kneeling before him. Now, why do people get on their knees before Jesus? They get on their knees to worship. They get on their knees to beg for mercy. They get on their knees because they're asking for something that only God can do in his mercy. She gets on her knees to demand something. I just want to give you a first picture of what servant leadership's not. It's this. It's not getting on your knees to demand stuff of Jesus. And can I just like parentheses this for a second for all of us as pastors? Man, that is most of my prayer life as God's been chiseling away at it. As God's been like constantly reminding me, like, don't get on your knees to demand stuff of me. That's not, that's not who I've called you to be. And here comes mom on her knees demanding of Jesus, like, let my son sit on the right hand and the left hand when the kingdom comes, right? Jesus turns this around. 
from talking to her. Now he's talking to the disciples in verse 22, and he turns it from a statement to a question. Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? The cup. Oh, you've ever walked down this road, preached a sermon in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looks at his father and he, and he says this without holding a cup in his hand, right? He says, Father, if there's any other way, um, take this cup from me. So we know what cup he's talking about. For Jesus, all through the Old Testament, these, these Hebrew guys knew what he was talking about. The cup was only one thing. It was the cup of God's covenant, and it had two purposes. One is that what God used to pour out his wrath on nations when he said he'd pour out his cup of wrath on the nations and make them drink it to the dregs, the very last drop. It was the blood of the covenant, and in this case, the judgment on these nations, whether it was Israel or Judah, uh, Syria, whoever it was. But the other place the cup of the covenant was used was in, the, was in just the Passover meal, where they would take these cups as a representation of the blood being shed for them through the sacrifices. And so it was always the same thing. The cup always had one significant meaning, and it was about blood and about death. And Jesus looks at his two friends after the mom demands and says, can you drink this cup that'll be laid up for you? And I want you to notice their response. Before we get there, I, hold on, before we get there, I just want to say this, like, the, the most difficult thing for me that I believe always happens whenever God starts continually working on me to, to raise up the call in my life to be the leader he's calling me to be is, is this. It always comes through and walks through and goes through the door of death. And there's just no way around it. Like, if, if we're going to be the leaders God's calling us to be, there's only one pathway for that thing, and it's through death. And let, let me say it just a little clearer. Leadership in God's kingdom requires death. And what does that look like? We're going to walk that out the rest of this passage. Like, if you're going to be the leader God calls you to be, raising up other leaders, there's going to be a death. And there's going to be a lot of deaths. But it's just, it's just the economy of God. And we know that in Jesus' life, right? Like at the end of his life, what made him the name above every other name was his death and his resurrection. It wasn't that he was a great teacher. It wasn't that he had the most follows on his TikTok. It wasn't that he could teach like nobody else. It wasn't that he was the most profound orator ever. Is that he died for your sin and rose from the dead that gave him the name above every name, which allows him to be king of kings, which, by the way, is the title for the greatest leader. And so the pathway to leadership is always through death. It was for Jesus, it, it will be for us. There's no way around that. I want everybody else to die except me. I don't know about you, like as a, as a, as a, as a leader of leaders, man, I'm, I'm, I'm always asking for other people to die with me. And we say things like, first one on the, on the battleground, last one off, because we've watched some good war movies. But when it gets right down to it, is that how we live? Like, are, are we really willing to like lay down our lives day after day? And who are we laying down our lives for? We laying down our lives for the pulpit? We laying down our lives for the church? Are we laying down our lives for, for a vision? Are we laying down our lives for a king? A lot of different ways to lay down your life. So Jesus further defines this truth. Verse 22, the, the two brothers answer back, we are able. We're able to drink this cup. And so then Jesus says to them, you will drink my cup. You will die following me. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. But it's for those who's been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Here's the second picture of like what leadership doesn't look like in the body of Christ. Is whenever somebody like steps into a place of leadership that's not theirs, there's a way you and I get to respond as leaders. And how the 10 responded is not it. 
Why did they get indignant at the two brothers? I mean, why did they get angry? I mean, I, I think there was some, probably some righteous anger there. They, how could they have handled it? I'm not saying how I would have handled it. I'm saying how could they have handled it? They could have gone and confronted the two brothers and said, hey, James, John, this isn't, this isn't the master's way. This isn't how he's asking us to lead. But instead, they just get mad. They get mad. And you know why I think they get mad? Because that's what they wanted. They just didn't have the courage to ask for it or demand it, or they didn't get their mom to come ask for it. However, that works out, right? And there's this moment where this division happens, and, and here's just some defining things for Jesus on leadership. Leadership without death unto our king just grows pride and causes division. When it, whenever there's leadership without death unto the king, when I say death unto the king, I'm, I'm going to be real specific here. Every religion in this world calls you to die to yourself. Like the greatest Buddhists are all about self-denial. The greatest Muslims are all about Ramadan. It's all about self-denial. And so self-denial isn't the issue. Dying to self is not the greatest thing that God's calling you to. He's asking you to die to him. And in dying to him, there will be things that God brings into your, your view and into your mirror and into your life that he's asking you to let go of, whether it's sin or preference, whether it's a, a dream or whether it's something else, there's all sorts of things that God asks us to let go of. Mostly, though, the death has to be unto Christ. And when we're not willing to die unto our Savior, listen, there's always going to be division in the body, and there's always going to be pride that grows up. That's just what happens. The flip of that is this, though, that where there is death unto our king, there's king, there's humility, and there's unity that happens in the body. And we're going to talk about this idea of like how humility grows in us, one of the most profound, impactful things I believe that you guys get to experience and, and leaders in the body of Christ are humble leaders that are bold. Like, think about that combination that when those two things come together, when you get to encounter somebody that has incredible boldness, but is super humble, we are, we are so enamored with people like that. And that's who our Savior was. He was King of kings, Lord of lords, holy. But at the same time was literally the guy who washed feet. That the one who, with a one word, stilled the waters. He didn't have to get up and preach at the lake or the storm. One simple, tiny word. One word healed. One word raised a dead life. One touch healed an ear. I mean, the humility and what Jesus, I mean, Jesus, I mean, if I was healing somebody, man, it would have been a, a show, right? I mean, if you were going to calm the sea, how would you have done it? It would have been more than a word, I promise. I promise you would have had more than a word come out of your mouth. And Jesus, I mean, the humility of his power is crazy. We want that humility because it's so attractive. But listen, humility only comes with humiliation. Humil Let me say it another way. Humility only comes with death. Humility only comes with your pride getting killed. Humility only comes with sin being murdered right before your very eyes. Just a warning for you about the whole death piece here. On the last night of Jesus' life, Peter was willing to kill for Jesus. On the last night of Jesus' life, Peter was willing to kill for Jesus, but he wasn't willing to die for Jesus. There's a big difference. There is a false leadership that wants to kill for Jesus and doesn't want to die for Jesus, and that, that leadership's from the pit of hell. And, and what I mean by kill for Jesus is this. We will run over people to accomplish our vision and we'll kill people in the name of Jesus as opposed to be willing to die for Jesus. 
That's, that's a false leadership. And Jesus called Peter out on it, right? Get, like, get behind me, Satan. He said exactly who it was and what it was. When Peter said, no, we're going to go with you. We won't let you die. I won't die. I won't. And what did he do? He told Peter, like, you aren't in your right mind. Satan's speaking through you. Get behind me. There's, there's a lot of ways we can die. There's only one that leads to the type of servant, empowered leadership God's calling us to, and that's when we die unto our king. Verse 25, he starts defining this more. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They have influence through power. That's how they lead. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Please don't miss that sentence. Jesus did not paint a dotted line for us. He did not give us a suggestion. This is a command. It shall not be so for you and I. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Also, don't want you to miss those two statements. He's not saying there aren't going to be leaders. He's just saying this. It's not going to be done the way the world does it. It's not saying there aren't going to be people that need to have influence. Everybody who has the Holy Spirit of God living in them has influence. You have influence in your home, in the community, in the church. It's not just pastors. We've got to figure out how to call people to the influence God's giving them through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the question is this, are we going to show them that kind of influence through power and platform? Because if that's what they see, if that's the only way they get to see they have influence, that's what the people in your church are constantly going to be clamoring for. Whether it's in their house or it's in the community, or in your church. And when it happens in your church, man, you and I get all sorts of like weirded out by it, don't we? Why do you want a title? Well, the reason they want a title is because they've only seen you use your title for influence. When you pull the pastor card out on them, as opposed to the servant card. And I'm not opposed to people being called pastors. If you live in a community, in a context where people need to call you pastors, man, I tried forever to get some people not to call me Pastor John, and they would like make their kids called me like the great and high exalted Pastor John, things like that. And it just makes me feel awkward because I'm like, eh, you know, but I get it. Context, culture, I get it. I grew up in that culture. Like you could not call the pastor in our church anything but pastor. You didn't even use his name. It was just pastor. But I, I do want to say this. There, there's something about how we platform us that calls the people that are following us to believe like that's the only way they can have influence. And so you will find dads in a house with a certain title. And I kidded with my kids. I mean, they're 25 and 23 now when they call me on the phone, like no lie. Every once in a while, one of them will call me on the phone and go, hi, exalted one, how are you doing? Because that's how I introduced myself with my kids. Like, hey, this is Will, this is Cade, and I'm the high and exalted one. And, you know, their friends would laugh and thought, thought it was funny because we would joke about it. And every once in a while, they call and tease me about it. And then they call me other names after that. But I promise you, like when people only see influence through title and position, it's just what they're going to go for. And they're going to create it, whether they have one or not, in their house, in the community, on the little league team. They're going to fight to be the head coach because they're going to have influence in that little league team, which is crazy. God didn't call us to have our greatest influence from title, position, or power, but from Humility and service unto our king. Verse 25, verse 27, you must be a slave. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a book out there called The Way of the Dragon and the Way of the Lamb, and I kind of borrowed some phrases here, and I'm going to read a quote from you in a minute. 
But here's, here's the first phrase. Leadership without death unto our king is the way of the dragon. There's no way around this. I want you to hear this as clear as I can say. Like leadership without death to our king is from the pit of hell. It's from Satan, and it's not a small miss. And here's why I want you to hear this. Please don't miss this. When you and I show leadership as platform and power, we are perverting the gospel. We sang it just a minute ago. What we sang was this, is that you and I were under rebellion to a king. And how did the king come and crush our rebellion? How did he do it? By coming down with, a, with an iron fist, smashing us all into the ground, judging us the way he should? One day, yes, there will be judgment. But how did the king, how did the leader of the universe come and crush the rebellion of our sin? Through bending his knee. Through bending his knee into death. By bending his knee into our death. And so when you and I present leadership as power, we're perverting the gospel. And so here's what happens. We stand up on a Sunday morning and we preach this Jesus servant king. And I'm not talking about long-haired hippie Jesus. I'm talking about Jesus, the servant king, who came in a manger but also is coming back with a sword. The humble, bold, holy, merciful God who brought together, it says in the psalm, this kiss of grace where holiness and mercy come together. That's our king, right? And so this king comes to earth to crush our rebellion through his servanthood by dying on a cross. And we preach that every Sunday. This lowly Jesus who comes out of heaven to this place to become our servant king. And then we stand over here and lead with power. And people, we wonder why they're confused about the gospel. Because we declare the gospel is, is an act of mercy. And yet we lead with everything but mercy. Do you see the perversion? And that's why it's from the pit of hell. And that's why the enemy longs for pastors to lead from power only. There's two kind of leaders in our world. There's, there's all of those um, people that lead from power and position. They're lords, they're dictators, and you've had those coaches. A lot of you had those dads. A lot of you've had those pastors. And then there's the other kind of leader that we talked about, the, the very passive, kind person. Maybe your dad was like that. My dad was like that. My, my dad was super kind. Had very little influence in our home most of my life. My mom was like the influencer. Like when I wanted to play, ran to my dad. When I was in trouble, my mom showed up. We've had all different kinds of leaders in our life, but I want to tell you, like the super kind, passive, no influence person is not any more from God than the person over here who's a dictator. They're both from the pit of hell. And, and unfortunately, as pastors, because we're afraid of power, some of us, we've seen like bad power in our lives. We've drifted over here to passiveness. And then we get into trouble and we get into conflict and we run over here to power. We feel very schizophrenic, right? Because our leadership is either like we load a gun and shoot people or we just avoid the conflict altogether. And we've never really figured out this third way of what does it look like to, to actually be a peacemaker who's bold and humble calling people to reconciliation, taking the bullets we need to take, not because we're shooting people, but because in sin, we're going to get shot at. It's part of the promise of Jesus to those that would follow. It's of the pit of hell when you and I lead from power for the fear of power. And Jesus didn't give us an option. The, the second part of what this looks like for you and I is that leadership with death and to our king is the way of the lamb. And it moves us from... From, to lead from servanthood, the, the way of the lamb. I mean, think about that imagery of the lamb. And this is your king, right? I mean, I mean he would, that he calls himself the spotless lamb. 
you know, realize what all that is, what all that means. And there's two ways we get to lead in this world. One's the way of the dragon, the other one's the way of the lamb. And they look a lot alike, but they're very, very different. In this book, Eugene Peterson writes the forward, and I want you to see this forward that he writes. It'll be on the screen while I read this. It says, every day we make a choice, we choose, we follow the dragon and his beast along their parade route. And he's talking about leaders in the church, fond of statistics, taking on whatever role is necessary to make a good show and get the applause of the crowds in order to get access to power and become self-important. Or we follow the lamb along a farmyard route, worshiping the invisible, listening to the foolishness of preaching, practicing a holy life that involves heroically difficult acts that no one will ever notice in order to become simply our eternal selves in an eternal city. It's the difference politically between wanting to use the people around us to become powerful and, oh my, or if unskilled, getting used by them. Ever been in that place? And here's the other side of that, entering into covenants with people around us so that the power of salvation, not our power, but the power of salvation extends into every part of the neighborhood, the society, and the world that God loves. And there's a totally different way that God's called us to lead. And the question really Jesus starts to roll out for us is what does this look like and how does it get empowered like tangibly what does it look like in the body of Christ here's here's just one further definition that he has that I think super important humble servant leadership further defined is this idea of going first he says this in 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 the last part of verse 25 there I believe whoever would be first among you would be your slave In their culture the first was was a reference to the covenant head of of going first of who was the first and so Jesus in our covenant relationship with God the father was our first you as a dad in the house and the covenant relationship that God set up between you and your wife are the first. Now we know, I think we know, according to Ephesians, what it looks like for us as husbands to go first. And we know what the world sees it as, right? Like our first means we get to like be dictators. Even, even what most of the world thinks when we're dictators, we're just in, we're kind, we're benevolent dictators. And the world doesn't call us, doesn't see that as a good thing, right? Jesus doesn't even call us to be that kind of first. What does it look like to go first as a husband in your relationship with your wife? In Ephesians 5, he tells us, right? The first to what? Die. And so what does that look like on a day-to-day basis for you practically? It it means things like this. You're the first one to apologize. You're the first one to repent. You're the first one to confess. You're the first one to confront a conflict in your kids and discipline instead of like waiting for your wife to step in and then you get to be a good cop, show up like, hey, what's going on here? You're the first one to teach whenever something needs to be taught. You're the first one to serve. You're the first one to love. You're the first one to pursue and love when someone doesn't pursue back. You're the one that pursues the 18-year-old and the 20-year-old son and the 24-year-old son when they're not loving Jesus. You're the first one that pursues your neighbor. There's all sorts of firsts that God's calling us to. The first of the world is to lord over. The first of the king that we follow is is in dying and going in places that only Jesus can lead us. And so we can make a list of 50 things of what that looks like for you as a pastor. What does that look like for you to go first in your context with, with your other leaders, with the people in your body, with the people that you're walking with? Because most of our first, I think, need to be rearranged. And it would completely redefine for your people what servant leadership is. And then imagine the trickle-down effect of this. What's going to happen in their homes as dad's seeing you go first and all these different things 
of serving, loving, pursuing. What, imagine what that happens in the home. Imagine what that starts to look like in their workplace. Imagine what that starts to look like in their groups that they're leading, people that are discipling, all those different things. It impacts everybody. So what empowers our leadership? How do we die? Here's, here's, here's one of the, the things that I, that I need you to hear as we, as we wrap this up. Verse 28, Jesus says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to be served, to give his life as a ransom for many. One of the things that I, I think, for those of us that love the gospel and the implications of the gospel in every part of life, that the gospel isn't just a door into salvation, but it is, the, it is the, the way to sanctification, it is the way to our glorification, the work of Jesus Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit is all of life. And one of the things that we love about that is that it, it, it absolutely reminds us that this life that I live is absolutely based on the life that Christ lived, and not just as an example, but for my power. And so watch how God starts to unpack this, this idea that living in the power of Jesus is what absolutely is going to empower you as a humble servant leader. Somewhere along the line as a pastor, I thought my death was going to empower servant leadership in the body of Christ. And you need to die, no, no doubt about it, but your death is just accessing the death of Jesus Christ's death. When you lay down your life, you're not laying down your life as a manipulative tool to get everybody else to lay down their life so everybody will learn how to just deny themselves. Because that's sometimes what happens. Like, I, I thought this with my kids. Man, if my kids saw me taking out the trash, then they would want to join in. And you know what? They don't. They're like, glad dad's doing that. I don't have to. And you'll notice this in your church. You're moving chairs around as a pastor, thinking other people are going to help you, and you're like, they're just over there talking. Punks. I set up church for like 14 years as a church planner and got mad at people all the time because they weren't serving, instead of going over there and asking them to serve with me. And so listen, what empowers people's service is not your death. It's not your sacrifice to move chairs and slug them around in 100-degree heat. It's the death of Christ that empowered you, and it's the death of Christ that will empower them, and we need to talk about that. But don't be fooled. It's not your death. It's Christ's death. You get to access his death through your death. But it's his death. Watch the, how the scripture rolls this out. This is 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His death leads to our death to sin so that we can live in righteousness. And then Peter quotes Isaiah 53, by his wounds you've been healed. And he's talking about all sorts of healings there, but in this case he's talking about how we walk in righteousness of people that all we've known is sin. Do you want to empower walking in the selfless, humble, bold servant leadership of Christ? It's through the death of Christ that we walk in that righteousness. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 7. gets more specific. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God. The power of God in very weak vessels, right? It's not about us. We are afflicted in every way. Listen to all the death that's going on here, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. This is the point. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. As we die, the point is not our death. The point is revealing the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can be revealed. So here's the question. Is your suffering, is your death, is your humiliation a place of just you being made to look low so that you can bring other people along to serve with you? Is it all about creating more servants in your church? Because if you're dying just to create more workers, man, you've missed it. But if you're dying to worship a king, I'll go back to the lady. 
the mom? Are you bending your knee before the king to make a demand for more servants? Are you bending your knee before Jesus because you worship the king? And then you're teaching other people how to come and bend their knee before the Jesus to worship a king, which creates an army of servants that are friends, like we sang about earlier, that are sons and daughters, not manipulators. This is Isaiah 53, 5, the verse that Peter quoted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, his death for our life, crushed for our iniquities. He was the chastisement that brought us peace. His death brings us shalom with God, and by his wounds we are healed. Every piece of redemption and restoration you need in this life is in Jesus. Redemption for your body, redemption for your soul, redemption for the brokenness in us that doesn't want to serve but wants to lead out of power, not out of servanthood. All of it. The mom came on a bended knee. We come on a bended knee to die for Jesus. She came on a bended knee to demand. We come on a bended knee to die for Jesus. But here's where power comes. It's the power of servant leadership moves through us because our Savior bent his knee to his Father. At the end of the day, like that's, that's what we've got to come back to. Stop demanding. Stop believing that even my bended knee is somehow going to make my whole world like follow me. But bend a knee before your Savior to die so that others can see that it was his bent knee that actually changes us and changes a culture. We're going to talk about how we build a culture in the next session, but I just want to end with this thought. Like the, the crisis that we're in the middle of, leadership-wise in the church, doesn't go away because we call people to serve. That We've been doing that forever, right? And every week, some of you stand in places like this and say, we need more people to and we do. We're always going to. That's never going to be an end. Just like when Jesus told them, hey, you're always going to have the poor among you. Listen, you're always going to need servants among you. It's never going to end in the body of Christ. The question is, are we going to create a culture that worships Jesus as we're calling them to serve, that actually bends a knee in death before Jesus? Or are we just creating a culture to fill slots because we've got kids we need to take care of? It's two totally different cultures. Are we going to be people that lead from power? Or are we going to be people that lead from a bended knee? I just want to pray for you right now. Pray for me because I believe this at this point. There's some of us that, have, that, have, that we know we failed. And here's what I want you to hear this morning. The stripes of Jesus are the same stripes that not only bring you forgiveness for your sin, but they also, they also do this. They say this to you. And don't miss this. The shame and the guilt that you're so quick to pick up aren't yours to pick up. Like, Jesus went first for you, taking your shame and your condemnation. You don't have to take that. Like, as a dad, when our kids mess up, what's the first thing we pick up? Shame. What is Jesus asking you to pick up as a dad going first? Figure out how to go serve and love and confront where needed. That's your call as a dad. It's not to pick up shame. So as a pastor, your first call isn't to pick up shame because your body isn't leading the way it's called to or because you've not led the way you've called to. Your first call, your first call is to repent. And your second call is to look at your, your Savior and say, Jesus, empower me through your death. Change me through the Holy Spirit of God. Change me. So right now, let's pray. Let's ask him to take the shame and the guilt. Father, there's, there's, there's every one of us is, is walking in way too much shame as dads, as husbands, as friends, as pastors, as leaders. God, thank you that Jesus went first and took our shame. Thank you that Jesus went first and took not only the guilt, the punishment for our shame, but he took the shame that makes us hide. 
He takes the shame that separates us from people. He takes the shame that causes us to want to hide from you, Lord. And so in this place right now, we thank you, Jesus, for going first, for being our servant leader who bent the knee to the Father and took on our sin and our shame. And because of that, you bring healing by your stripes. God, thank you that you heal our bodies. Thank you even more that you heal our souls. Thank you more that you heal the 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 places in us that, that have called us to love and to serve and to give and to hope in places and ways that we can't. And so, God, today we're asking you to heal those things. Make us give and serve and love and pursue only the way Jesus can. Father, in the name of Jesus, in this place, would you pour out grace and mercy over these men? Remove shame. Jesus has consumed that. Let him have it. And walk in the power of the Holy Spirit that he's been given to you through Jesus' death. And in the name of Jesus, God, ask us. God, ask us not just to die for you, but to die unto you. And may we have the power through your Holy Spirit to say yes today, tomorrow morning, tomorrow night. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.